So while I do this, I'm going to act like I'm not completely terrified um, and that I'm not extremely nervous and that this is not my first time doing this. But on the flip side of that, I would be totally okay if you act like this is my first time doing this, um, that you would act like I have no idea what I'm doing because I don't. So while well, I thought about thinking about preaching, something that I often thought about was I'm not Tanner. And I am far from being Daniel. Daniel's an extremely intelligent guy. No offense, Tanner. Um, but the way, that he, the way that he explains things, the words he uses, that just shows him to be extremely smart. And that you, you hear that in his ideas. And I often think, that's not me at all. And then Tanner, very gifted worship leader, very gifted speaker. And sometimes I feel like, that's also not quite where I feel like God has gifted me. And so what I've been praying this week a whole lot is just that I would not try to be Daniel and Tanner, that I would not desire that, but that I would just desire to allow God to speak. Um, so pray with me real quick. Father God, we just thank you for being a God that, that uses broken people. We thank you for being a God that is just so big and just so worthy of our worship that, that you just chose to, to save us, to um, use us in our weakness. And I just thank you for that today. I thank you for just for who you are, for being um, just the ultimate perfect God and that is worthy of all worship. I pray this morning that you would just use me in my weakness, that, um, that everyone would just not hear my words, but they'd hear you, um, that, that somehow I would just become so small so you can be so big. Father God, speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage real quick. We're in Matthew 4, and I'm going to go the first 11 verses. So verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms in the world and their glory, and said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship and love, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I thought a lot this week about where to go with this passage, what to do with it. Like, there's so many different things I think you could focus on. Um, go the route of fasting and look at the importance that Jesus was fasting during these 40 days and as he was preparing for his ministry. And we saw last week that he was publicly anointed, that he was baptized. And I kind of thought about that, and it's definitely there, but that's not where I want to kind of sit for today. Um, I thought about talking specifically about the third temptation. This just talks about worshiping God and God alone, and that he alone is worthy. And I think that's absolutely there. I think that that is 
a main focus of this text. But that's also not where I kind of want to sit. I also like, just looked at the whole th the theme of overcoming temptation. And just that's obviously in this text, and I think that's very important. Um, and as I thought more about that, it was, okay, there's three temptations, that's three points, that's a perfect bulleted three-point sermon, Tanner. But, I, yeah, that's not where I landed either. Um, here at CRC, something we often talk about is the fact that we say Jesus is better. We say, we put a hashtag, Jesus is better. We um, put it on the back, we put it on the back of his shirt. We, it's a Wi-Fi, you can knock it on our Wi-Fi. Um, but we, some of us have used that. But kind of a theme that I keep coming back to as I was reading through this is the, the fact that Jesus is better and the, the specific avenues and how he displays himself as better. The way that we've kind of done this, that Tanner and Daniel have been um, going through the text, is going through Matthew and then showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies and also the better version of Israel, that Jesus is doing exactly what Israel failed to do. And in their sin, in their um, constant rebellion, that Jesus is shown to be the better example of that. And that's kind of what I hope to do here, that I hope to show that, that through this text that it's pointed to is Jesus is better. Um, that's kind of where I landed. Um, some clarifications before we start. Something that the, first, the very first portion of this text says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And at first, that's kind of something I struggle with. Like, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then thinking, okay, well, in James it says that God tempts no one. So how, how, do, how, do, you, how do you at these things? And I, and I looked it up, and it, actually the parallel version, in, the parallel verses in Mark, Mark 1.12, actually says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Not, not quite as passive, it's very directed, that God drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. And I couldn't get away from that. And I thought, I kept asking myself, why? Why was Jesus led into the wilderness to be tempted? If God tempts no one, why did this happen? And I kept asking myself time and time again, why? And I think pointed out some reasons why he was not to kind of start out with. When I was in China, I had the awesome opportunity to lead international Bible study. Um, international was actually no Chinese were there, which is kind of interesting. Um, but we were focusing on the international students that were in the country um, studying. And over those 14 months, we had the awesome opportunity to have students from 17 different countries, um, which was awesome. A lot of African countries, a lot of European countries. Um, and it was really, really, really incredible to be able just to see their viewpoints and to talk about this God for whoever they believed him to be. And we had one young man um, who came often. He was um, from, from Tanzania, I think is how you say it, in Africa. Um, and he was a Muslim. And he came and engaged in our discussions, and it was awesome. He was extremely respectful of the way that he would go about discussing Jesus. However, what he would often do is point to the humanity of Jesus. He would point to the passages in the Bible that said that Jesus was only a man. And... He would use the scripture and, and point to the fact that Jesus was not God, that he was only a man. And this was one of the passages that he used to support this. He said that, that Jesus had to be led into the wilderness because he was afraid he was going to sin. That Jesus did not want to be led into the wilderness because he was afraid that he'd be proven unfit to be the Messiah. 
and that this is why Jesus had to be led, because he didn't want to go on his own. Um, he also pointed to the end of this passage. He said this, the, the angels came and were ministering to him. That it, he said this showed Jesus had need and that Jesus could not be God if he had need. And angels had to come and minister to him. And it just kind of stumped me for a second. I was like, well, that can't be right. Like, that's not the first part, talking about Jesus being scared that he was going to sin. Like, I don't, that's not in Scripture. That is absolutely not there. Um, and so that's not, where we have to, that's not where we can land here. And I'm not really going to touch too much on the angels come, coming and ministering to Jesus. Um, however, I do think one thing about that is really, really interesting. That word ministering, um, I don't do Greek. Um, I've got a little handy, handy, handy book that kind of helps me transfer words. But that, same, that, that word minister is the same word that is used for deacon. That's kind of awesome. It talks about deacons meeting spiritual needs, or not spiritual, physical needs around the church. And so I don't know exactly what the angels are doing, but I feel like Jesus in his humanity, it said Jesus was hungry. And the effects, and Jesus fasted for 40 days, which is shown to be about the longest the human body can go without severe physical issues. Um, doctor, agreed? Maybe? Okay. Um, but... So there was physical needs there, and it says the angels came or were ministering to him. Um, but we can't believe that Jesus had to be led because he did not want to go because he was afraid he was going to sin. That's absolutely not um, what Matthew is saying here. And bear with me on an example real fast um, about more and more reason on why Jesus was led into the wilderness. I think that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I think it is important to realize and to see, as we kind of go through the temptations, about why he was led into the wilderness. Um, think in terms of an engineer for a second. This is for you, Tim. Um, not so much your kind of engineering, but you've got this engineer, this architect, who builds bridges. Builds perfect bridges, is known for making bridges that don't fall. Bridges that don't collapse. They never had any issues. He builds this nice, fancy bridge and then gathers people and brings people and says, okay, look at my bridge. He parks car after car after car. He parks semi after semi after semi on this bridge. Ton after ton on this bridge. Why does he do this? Is he doing this to, to test to see if the bridge is going to break in front of all these people that he's gathered? I think that's absolutely not the case. I think that what he's doing is showing that the bridge will not break. His point here is that the bridge is not going to break, and I'm going to show you that it's not going to break. The bridge cannot break. I think that's an incomplete example, but I think it kind of shows that as Jesus was led into the wilderness, that he was led to prove that he's not going to sin, that Jesus cannot sin. It was never a, ooh, we're going to see if he's going to sin or not. It was to show that Jesus is not going to sin, that Jesus cannot sin. And I think that, just keep that in mind as we kind of go through the rest of it, that this was to show that Jesus was perfect and sinless. A couple weeks ago, Tanner mentioned on a Sunday night that this battle between Satan and Jesus has raged since creation. Um, I think that's when you preach on Sunday night. But he, he kind of set this up. And I think that here you, you, you physically see it. That you, see, you see Satan, you see Jesus, and the battle that is there. And what I kind of want to do is just set apart or point out three areas in which I feel like Three, sorry, Tanner, it kind of still worked out that way. Um, but three ways, and I, I see that his way of fighting is better. That Jesus, the way he interacted with the devil, the way that he um, 
did that battle, is better. And the first thing I see is, like, Jesus could have avoided this fight altogether. That at the end of the passage, you see where Jesus says, be gone, Satan. But to know that it was completely within his power to do that before the first one. And you see that when he's on the cross, people said, if you're really a son of God, come down from there. Call the angels. And to know that Jesus could have done that. I think that's important to note here. That Jesus could have said, be gone, before Satan even got his first temptation out of his mouth. And to show that, as we see, it said that Jesus was led. I think that's pointing out a really important thing, that, that God was in control of all this. God was orchestrating these acts. It was not the devil in control thinking that, oh, I've got him alone, I've got him fasting, I've got him hungry, so I'm going to go and tempt him. But no, this was a God thing. This was God playing this out from the very beginning on how this is all going to work out. I think that's huge. But even though Jesus had the power to say, be gone from the very beginning, he didn't. And he was obedient in not doing so. And I think that's kind of what shows his perfect obedience, that in his obedience, that Jesus is better. The New Testament's kind of full of different examples of Jesus' obedience. And I just wrote down two. Um, John 14, 31 says, I do as the Father has commanded me, this is Jesus speaking, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 12, 49 says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me himself has given me this commandment, what to say and what to speak. I think I could go and like pull a lot more verses that show the obedience of Jesus, that he was doing the Father's will. But I think this will be all right for now. Um, that due to his perfect obedience, that Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. And you see that in many different aspects of his ministry. But I think that you see this obedience the most, and you see the way that he fought the battle. You see the way that he didn't say, be gone, Satan. He didn't remove himself from the situation. But he was obedient to God. And I think you see that in his method of fighting. And they kind of see that his method of fighting is absolutely better. There's a verse, it's kind of a well-known verse um, in Psalm 119. But I want you to, as I read this, to think of Jesus, the eternal Son, the Son of God, thinking these verses as he's being tempted. Psalm 119, 9-11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Can you hear Jesus in his divinity thinking this? Like, we've been commanded to store up his word in our heart. But the, so when temptation comes, we have it. But can you picture Jesus saying this? Picture Jesus. That's how he uses. That's the method that he uses when temptation comes. He runs to scripture. And I think that is huge, that in his divinity, he didn't say, be gone, Satan. He used the way that God had laid out. He used that exact avenue. I want to kind of go through each temptation and kind of look at how this played out. The first temptation, when he said, Jesus is hungry, and he says, turn these loaves, or turn these stones into loaves. And Jesus was very quick to quote Deuteronomy 8.3 and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right away, you see Jesus pointing towards scripture and pointing towards us being and God being sufficient over the food. That God is sufficient, not the worldly Food that God has provided and that God has designed our bodies to need, 
But Christ is pointing to so much more, that we can't rely on food and food alone, that, that he's living by the word of God. The second temptation, he says, throw yourself down from here and call on the angels. They will, they're going to catch you, lest your foot strike a stone. And what's huge here is I think that Satan actually quotes scripture. Quayton, uh, Quayton. Satan quotes um, Psalm 91, 11 through 12, and he says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard your heart in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I think what's huge is that this is real scripture. This is not something that Satan is making up. This is not something that he's conjuring up and saying, this is going to get him. This is going to trap him. But this is him quoting scripture. And I think the biggest thing here is this one word, context. In my hermeneutics class, the basically in biblical interpretation, how to apply that, we talked about this word, we talked about over and over and over again. Context, context, context. Reading a verse within the chapter, reading a chapter within the book it's written in, reading the book within the Old or New Testament, reading the New Testament within the context of the Bible, and making sure that we're interpreting each scripture accordingly. So if something says that you see this verse, and obviously it shows this, if that is against the rest of the scripture, Go back and read that verse again. Let's try to apply that within its, in its context first. And this is exactly what Satan does. He, or he doesn't do. He takes it out of, his context, out of his context. And I think you see the dangers of this all over. Um, as you Google, just go to Google and type in Philippians 4.13. Go type in Romans 8.28. Go type in Jeremiah 29.11. And what you'll see is this abundance of scripture, a bunch of references, a bunch of blogs, a bunch of Facebook posts, a bunch of articles, a bunch of sermons that are, are pointing to scripture, pointing to these verses, yet are totally twisting them, are totally taking them out of their context and not how they were written. Um, just, just do that sometime and then read, these, read the verses within their context and see the differences in how they're used. But this is what Satan does. And I challenge you also to go back and read Psalm 91 this week. I'm not going to get into it a whole lot right now, um, but read Psalm 91, what Satan quoted, and try to sh- and see how that was intended to be used and how Satan used it and totally twisted it and totally said that if you jump from here, God's going to catch you. If you read those, four ver- those couple verses, it seems to say that, but I challenge you to go back and read that within its context and try to, and try to see what that's actually meaning. But I can tell you it's not saying that jump down from here and I'll catch you. Jesus responds very quickly with Deuteronomy 6.16 and says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I think this kind of shows that Satan is crafty. The the way that the methods that Satan uses is crafty. He's creative, but he's not a creator. You see that he uses scripture. He uses God's own word to to try to tempt Jesus. That he's not a creator. You see the third temptation that says, Worship me, and I will give you all these kingdoms and all their glory. Um, I kind of laughed at this first time I read it, kind of in this whole frame of mind of Jesus is better. And I read this, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. That's kinda, it's, it's almost humorous, the fact that he would say, Worship me, and I'm going to give you all this. Um, what I want you to do is flip real quick to Colossians 1. Um, starting in verse 15. I'm trying not to have you flip around too much. This is the only place. Colossians 1.15. It's, it's one of my favorite passages throughout Scripture. Um, just to show why this is slightly humorous. Why it's silly. Why this temptation of the devil is foolish. 
Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says, He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see this? That God has already promised Christ absolutely everything. That everything was made through him, everything was made for him, and yet you have Satan here saying, worship me and I'm going to give you all this earthly stuff. Like, worship me and I'm going to give you this kingdom over here that you see. I'm going to give you this kingdom and all the glory, all the wealth that's there, I'm going to give you that. But do you see the comparison of what Christ has been promised, what Christ has been made, what was made through him, and then what Satan is offering? Like, they don't compare whatsoever. And I, I keep getting in my mind, like, that's so foolish. Like, if I'm Jesus, I'm laughing, saying, really? But I feel like that really kind of points to the third thing. And you say that his humility in fighting is better. Because he didn't laugh. He didn't snicker. He didn't get puffed up. He didn't say, you're an idiot. Like, he didn't do that. But what he did was go to Scripture again. He said, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.13 and said, You should worship and love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You've got Jesus, the eternal Son, the one who is shown in Revelation to be the only one worthy to open the scroll. And yet he's offering, Satan is offering so much less. Listen to Hebrews 2.18. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see that, that in his obedience, in his humility, that Christ legitimately did suffer. And I think there's, there's this, I'm going to use one big word, um, docetism or docetism. I don't even know how to say it. Um, Daniel will correct me, I'm sure. But this, this belief that, that Jesus did not really suffer that he only appeared to suffer for our sake. It wasn't really a thing that he just did it to kind of for our benefit. Um, and that's a very big view within Islam, is that, that God could not suffer because he's God. That would be little God to be able to suffer um, or to, to be subject to that. And that's absolutely not the case. And that's not what Scripture says in the New Testament specifically. Um, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That this is why Jesus suffered. That as our high priest, Daniel kind of mentioned this last week, I believe, that set aside as our high priest, that we have, a, we have a high priest that can sympathize with us because he was tempted just like we are. That he suffered just like we are. I don't want to miss the importance of this. I don't want to miss the importance that that God suffered, that, that Jesus in this, in this passage here, that he legitimately suffered. And that would be, but because of his, his humility and because of his obedience, he's able to be our high priest. I don't want to miss that. I want to kind of step back for a second and look at this passage as a whole and look at all 11 verses. And in doing so, I'm going to read Deuteronomy's 8, 2 through 3 real quick. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to. Um, I've got them marked out, so it's real fast. But Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 says, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, 
led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know the man, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did you see the similarity here? That, that, there, that Israel was led in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, in their, because of their sin, they were led there for 40 years. That time and time again, as they were tested, they failed time and time again. They sinned time and time again. They were hungry. Legitimately, they were hungry. They cried out to God. We were better off in Egypt. Send us back. Let us go back. Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We, we had food there. They cried out to God, not trusting in God's word, not trusting in the promises that God had made from them, that had given them from the very beginning, like spoke to them and said, I promised you this. And yet they were questioning that. They were not looking to God. They were looking to what they physically saw, what they physically needed. And I think as you, as you look at Matthew 4, you see these past, this passage that displays Jesus pointing to the eternal word of God every time. You see that as he was hungry, he didn't, he didn't point out that God is not good, God has not given me food, I'm struggling, 40 days, awful, I can't imagine. But what he did was point and say, that the word of God is what I need. That I need God, I don't need food. God will provide the food, I'm not too worried about that. As you saw that he was tested, as, as Satan came and, and tempted him time and time again, you don't see him fall time and time again like you saw Israel. What you see is him being sinless each and every time. You see him trusting the word of God each and every time. And God did, and he did not, I don't think we quite get the thing that Jesus was hungry. That Jesus was hungry. That he hadn't eaten in 40 days. Israelites, I don't know, their regiment on eating or what they had, what they didn't have. But it says they were hungry. I think it's just awesome. You see that God, that Jesus, trusted solely in the word of God. He was trusting solely in God, pointing nowhere else, not relying on food. I think that's huge. I think as you see the Jesus as displayed in Matthew 4, that you see him completely without sin. You see Israel set up as this fail. They failed time and time again, like I just said. And you see Jesus set apart as this perfect example. This perfect, would not, even in hunger, did not sin. Even when tested, did not sin. Even when being led into the wilderness by God's eternal plan, that he did not sin. Do you see this, this, this difference here? This difference of Israel being set apart as this perfect, or is Jesus being set apart as better? As perfect. What I couldn't do here is skip over the, the practical side of this. The, I really was like, oh, that's a good ending, comparing the Israel to Jesus and just displaying Jesus is better. But I think the practical side of this is huge. I think, as we, we've seen Jesus is better, that Jesus is the supreme example, one worthy to follow. I think we also see these temptations play out very differently today. We see these temptations all too often within our own lives. You see, you see Satan come and say, command these stones to become bread. 
I don't necessarily know that that's how he tempts us today. Um, if anyone thinks they can do that, feel free. Andy, you don't have to make pancakes. Um, but I think what's crucial to point out here is that Satan tempts Jesus with something that he has the power to do. But Satan acknowledges, you could do this. You could do this, so do it. I think Satan knew that, that all Jesus had to do was say a word, and those stones would become bread, and that he would not be hungry. That's huge. And I think that as, he, as we hear these same temptations, the, the same temptations come by way of saying, you can do this. You can absolutely do this. And I think that that kind of comes through our culture, through our society that says, if you want something, you have to do it. And you, you're able to do it. Look, you're able to fight for that promotion at work. You're able to do this. And I, th I think that we kind of get this mindset. I'm going to use a natural selection thing a little bit differently than Tanner did, Nate. But you see this, we, we have this, this belief that, this, I think society uses it, that only the strongest survive. That you've got to kind of step on the weak to get what you want in terms of society, not the rest of it. But society believes this. That, that nothing's going to be given to you. The individuality, like, you've got to do it for yourself. You're not, you're not going to have it handed to you. But this is not what we see in the Bible. You have a God that is given, not one that says, you have to do, 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 do. I think that's, that's huge here. I think that people call into question God's goodness when he says to wait. Or when he says, I've made you this promise. I'm not going to fulfill it right now. And I think that the world is saying, well, then go do it. Go do it anyways. And I don't think that's the model that Jesus did. Jesus said, nope, I'm going to trust in the promises of God. I'm going to totally rest there. I'm not going to worry about these temptations, these things that I could do, but I know that's not what you're telling me to do, God. I challenge you to think about your own life. Think about the ways that this, you, you see this, the things that you're told to go and do, not rest in God's promises. The second temptation, it says, throw yourself down from here. God will send his angels to catch you. Makes sense. It's true, right? I mean, all the time you hear, God is for you, not against you. You hear that all the time. Romans 8.31 says, for if God is for us, who can be against us? Legitimate scripture. Totally believe it. Have no problem with that. But I think what we do is we use this out of context. We use this out and say, I'm going to go do this. God is going to protect me while I go do it. God is going to be there and catch me if I happen to screw up. Uh, I'm going to bring God along to support me in what I do. And I think that's something we fall into all too often. That it's kind of that context thing. You saw Satan use scripture out of context. And I think that without knowing it, sometimes we do it too. I think that we want a God who supports us in our doings, not a God that uses us in our weaknesses. And I think that's huge. I think that, that as we go along, we don't, we want God to be there as a co-pilot. We want God to be there kind of going along with us. We don't want a God that's leading us. We don't want a God that leads us into the wilderness to be tempted. That doesn't sound good. Yet we have a God that says in Isaiah, that it says, For as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And I think we need to acknowledge that. Acknowledge that I'm not, we're not going to understand we're not going to fully grasp why Jesus had to be led into the wilderness, why we're in a spot where we feel like, man, is God testing us right now? What is going on? But that we would rest in the fact that we have a God that wants to use us in our weakness. 
We don't have a God that says, just do what you want to do. I'll support you in it. I'll make sure you don't fall. I'll make sure you don't get hurt. That's not the, that's not the view. That's not the God that we have. I challenge you to look at your life, to look at the ways that this applies, the ways that are you trying to use God or are you trying to be used by God? Look at the third one. It says, I will give you all the things if you will worship me. That's what Satan told Jesus, what he offered him. And I think that right now, like, we don't often hear Satan saying, worship me, worship me, worship me. But I think what you do see through various avenues is, Jesus, or is Satan saying, don't worship God, don't worship Jesus. Look at all these other things. Look at this. Like, I'm going to offer you pleasure. I'm going to offer you money. I'm going to offer you satisfaction of others. I think that through the church, he's even saying, look, worship health, wealth, prosperity. Like, look at this. I'm going to offer you all this. And I think the church has too often fallen prey to this. Um, but that's also not the God that we have. I want you to listen. To, I'm going to read a quote by John Piper. Um, I've changed some words around. Um, it was said in 1981, I think. Um, I tried to contextualize a couple things, and I changed a couple things. But listen to this and see how you hear this temptation. See if you've heard this before. He says, if you are a child of God, why are you living like a poor person? If you are a, chi- if you are a child of the king, why don't you live like a prince? The child of the king doesn't eat rice, they eat steak. The children of the king, they don't drive secondhand clunkers, they drive new fancy cars. The children of the king don't shop at secondhand thrift stores, they shop at the mall where the name brands are. The children of the king don't throw away their lives living in Japan, China, Iraq, or Syria. Children of the king don't even throw away their lives living in rough areas of Johnson City. If you're a child of the king, claim your blessings. God has promised to send his angels to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Throw yourself into these blessings. The best testimony you can be to your status as an heir of God is to be wealthy and have the best of everything. Do you see the church, or not the church, do you see society pointing to this? I feel like too often you see the church promising this. He's not saying, to CRC, why are you here? You could be somewhere comfortable with better heat. You could be somewhere with floors, with nicer equipment. You could be in a better place. But that's not where God is promising. I feel like you see God has promised so much bigger than those things. That God has promised, as Daniel said last week, he's promised us sonship, to be heirs with Christ. And that doesn't even compare to these worldly things that Satan is tempting us with. Like, it doesn't compare at all. And I just pray that we would not look to that that we would not look to that for fulfillment, that we would not look to that for satisfaction, but that we would look back to Jesus, who says, you saw we, as we went through Matthew, Matthew 4, you saw that his obedience was perfect, that his obedience was better. You saw that his method of fighting, that he ran to Scripture, that he quoted the words of God when tempted, you see that as ultimately better. That you see his humility, his humility in fighting that, that now allows him to be our high priest, one that is able to sympathize with our suffering, with our suffering, with our weaknesses. But that was because of his humility. I pray that this is what we'd see, that we'd see Jesus ultimately bigger, that we'd see Jesus as better, that we would see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment that we are to hope in. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that 
that through him, Father, that you truly are reconciling the world to yourself, that, that you are providing a way for, for broken, broken people to once again have a relationship. And I thank you for this passage of Matthew, that, that you've laid out a perfect way. You, you've shown Jesus to be the perfect son of God, and that, and that in his temptation that, that he did not sin. And I just thank you for that, that we have a God who who is sinless, that we have Jesus who is sinless, but that we don't have a God that is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses and our suffering. Uh, I just thank you that that was your plan, that it's been your plan from the beginning, that um, though we may not understand, we acknowledge that, that your plan is greater, that your ways are higher, that there's nothing that we cannot overcome. I just pray that we would lean on Jesus, that we would see him as, as better, as the perfect Savior. I pray that you would just show us in our daily life, Father, the, the way that, that we are not looking to Jesus as better, the way that we're looking to our own ways as better. And I pray that we would just submit those to you, that we would just submit to your Lordship, that we would that we want nothing more than to glorify you. I thank you for this time, and I just I pray that, that you would just convict us, convict us that there's areas in our lives that, that we are still holding on to. I pray that, that we would not trust in our wealth. We would not trust in our own power, but that we would trust in you. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen.